Surely the eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth, says the Lord. Yet I will not totally destroy the descendants of Jacob, for I will give the command and I will shake the people of Israel among all the nations as grain is shaken in a sieve, and not a pebble will reach the ground. All the sinners among my people will die by the sword. All those who say disaster will not overtake or meet us. In that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins and will build it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom. And all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills, and I will bring my people Israel back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, as we consider the words of the ancient prophet Amos, we pray for insight and understanding on who you are and who you're calling us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we're uh, coming to the end of our series on the book of Amos, that ancient uh, prophet who went to share bad news. The bad news that uh, the people were going into exile largely based on their injustice toward the poor and those who couldn't uh, stand for themselves. And so Israel had uh, gone through a time of prosperity. They had much and yet they weren't taking care of those who had a need. And this is uh, the primary reason which God Uh, communicates to them through Amos that they are going to go into exile, that a foreign nation is going to come and remove them from their home. And so Amos has been a little bit of a a tough book. I mean, again, it's rooted in this theme that God is going to exercise discipline on his people, and this discipline involved his people going into exile, and uh, as we have seen, this exile was initiated because of injustice. And so talking about uh, discipline and exile, it's a tough subject. But here at the end of the book of Amos, we finally get some much needed good news. Uh, God says, I will not totally destroy the descendants of Jacob, for I will give the command and I will shake the people of Israel among all the nations as grain is shaken in a sieve, not a pebble will go to the ground. For those of you who are, who are, are bakers, you know that a, a sieve is, you, you, you put the material in the sieve, you shake it out, and you separate uh, two different kinds of things. So in the case of uh, 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 someone who is uh, uh, sifting flour, you sift out, let me keep kicking that, um, you sift out, let me see if I can just keep, do you guys see that? Isn't that fun? I'm going to move that, excuse me. All right, that's better. So you sift out those things that you want and those things that you don't want using a a sieve. And so the imagery here is that God is going to sift out those who 
are called by his name and those who aren't, and he is going to rescue them in the end. So this is good news after a challenging, challenging message that Amos has brought to the people. In that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls, restore its ruins, and rebuild it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name. Now, there's good news here in this uh, portion as well because God is now including not just those who are uh, genetically uh, rooted in being children of Israel, children of, of Jacob, but God is saying that this is for all the nations, that all the nations are going to have the opportunity to be called by children of God's name. And so we've, we have an inclusive element, and the New Testament points this out as it references Amos time and time again as being a point where God is being inclusive, including people from all nations in uh, his people. So this isn't just good news for uh, people who are genetically from Abraham, but for everyone. He continues in verse 13, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and will flow from the hills, and I will bring my people Israel back from exile. The implication here is that in this time to come, when God makes all things new, that the harvest is going to be so quick that someone who's planting the seeds is going to be immediately followed by the per- person who is uh, taking up the who, getting up the crop, who's reaping the crop. And so it's going to happen one after the pump. They're going to put the seed in the ground, and then the grapes are going to be there ready to be stomped by the feet for the new wine. And so if you live in an agrarian society, this idea of a, a bountiful and plentiful harvest is one that means a lot. You don't put the seed in the ground, and you know, if you're a farmer, you have to wait a long time, and you hope that it rains, and you hope everything goes well, and then hopefully you have something to, to harvest at the end of the time. God is saying, hey, when all things are made new, you're not going to have to wait like there's going to be bounty. There's going to be plenty for you. And so, again, the implications here is that although exile is coming, although the people are going to face difficult circumstances and times ahead, there is good news. There's reason to be optimistic. And so here at the end of the book of Amos, a difficult book, we have a really hopeful message. God is going to restore all things. Yes, he's going to bring about a destruction, and there's going to be difficult times ahead, but ultimately, God is going to make everything new. Now, I think God understands like our human nature and our need to have some optimism in our life. There's just so much uh, bad news in the world. Have you guys noticed all the bad news in the world? You know, you, I mean, you, 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 don't, you can't look at your phone. I look at my phone now, and I want to throw it away. I want to throw it across the room because there is something constantly going awry in the broken uh, world. And it just seems like it's one after the other. And so the idea that uh, God is here at the end of this challenging time where he's communicating that there's going to be challenging times ahead, that he wants to come back and assure uh, people that there's reason to be optimistic is a positive thing. In the book, The Optimism Bias, Talia Chereau, who is a professor of cognitive neuroscience, writes this about our innate need for optimism. optimism. Optimism has clear benefits, she writes. Hope keeps our mind at ease. It lowers our stress. It improves our physical health. This is probably the most surprising element of optimism. All else being equal, equal optimists are healthier and live longer. It's not just that 
Healthy people are more optimistic, but optimism can enhance health. Expecting our future to be good reduces stress and anxiety, which is good for our health. There's something about us that needs, as humans, that needs to feel like there's something around the corner that's going to be better. And so God, knowing this, finishes this challenging message to his people through Amos by saying, look, things are not always going to be as they are. A time is coming when all things are going to be made new. And those people who are called by my name, they have the opportunity to live, to live in a time and a place where the bountiful is going to always be har- uh, fruitful, where the, the harvest is going to be quick. And you're not going to be waiting around for your needs. And you're going to have, have vineyards and you're going to build them and you're going to be able to live in your own vineyard and take care of them. And you're not going to be working for someone else. So optimism is good for us. And in the present times in which we live in, we realize that there is so much trouble. And this is good news, not only for the people of Amos, but for us. God has a plan to make all things new. With that said, um, it is interesting that uh, while there is this reason to be optimistic, God did warn his people at the beginning of Amos of being overly optimistic for, uh, for undue reasons. In fact, uh, there were those who were optimistic about the exile. They're saying there's no exile that's going to come, and uh, you don't have to worry about it, and God specifically condemned them. Don't be optimistic about this. I'm bringing an exile. And so this leads us to the question, who should be optimistic? I mean, in one hand, God is saying, don't be optimistic. And in another hand, here at the end of Amos, he's saying there's reason to be optimistic because I'm going to make all things known. And so who should be optimistic about the ending message of Amos. Well, Amos is actually uh, pretty clear about this. It's those who, again, bear God's name. Bear God's name. Those who bear God's name, declares the Lord, they will receive all of these uh, things. Uh, This idea of bearing God's name is really our theme for today. And this is not the only place where the idea of being a part of people who are known by God's name is, is introduced. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and verse 9, we read that the Lord uh, will establish you as a holy people, as he promised you on oath. If you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in obedience to him, you will be his people. And then all peoples on the earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they will fear you. They will have respect for you. And then in 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14, we read this. If my people, maybe the most quoted passage in all of the, the two books of the Chronicles of the people of Israel. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. This idea of being called by God's name, it has implications of being part of God's family. When you're part of God's family, you're included and you take on his name. So the implication is as you're part of God's family, then you can be optimistic about the future. Then the message of Amos is, is for you. And this being part of God's family isn't something that's related to your, uh, your genetics or your, your ethnicity. It's open and available for everyone. And so what does it mean to... Uh, carry God's name? What are the implications of that, and what are the attributes of people who are called by God's name? Well, 
A second Chronicles actually gave us a couple of insights toward this. They will be humble, and this humility will lead them toward prayer and to seeking God's face. With which seeking God's face, the implication is that you have a desire for a close relationship with God. You know, when you look somebody in the, the face, that can be a little bit awkward. Um, you only do that with people you really want to you really want to connect with. In fact, oftentimes when we're talking to people, you know, we're not looking right in the face because that can be that can be weird. Have you ever had somebody you're talking to and they're just staring you in the face? It can be a little offsetting, but the idea is that you'd, when you look somebody in the face and you really want to get to know them, you want to connect at a, a level. And this is what God is saying: Hey, people who are are humble, people who are called by my name, they they seek my face. They want to get to know me at a, at a, at a close and intimate level of friendship. And so people who humble themselves, they will pray, they will seek my face, and they will turn from their wicked ways. These are the attributes of people who are called by God's name. And it's the people who are called by God's name who can take heart in the optimistic message at the end of Amos. Again, Amos, a lot of doom and gloom, but at the end, there's optimism. Who gets to enjoy that, that optimistic uh, worldview? It's people who are called by God's name. So this would be a natural a place to, to stop and say, hey, it's pretty uh, clear here. God has a plan, a plan for optimism, a plan to make all things new, and it's people who are called by his name who will take part in those good things to come. And uh, those kind of people have the attributes of a strong prayer life and a desire to get to know God on a, a close level who will seek his face and these people will turn from their wicked ways. And so I could end today and say, there's some good instructions. Uh, pray more. Seek God's face. You know, really, really desire in your heart to get to know him well. And then turn from your wicked ways. That would be a nice place to end the sermon. Go, we'll leave today. Pray more, get to know God more, read more of your Bible, turn from your wicked ways, and all will be well. But you know as well as I do that there is an innate problem with that advice. And that is that, first of all, you probably aren't that humble. Right? <laughs> right, right? I mean, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe you are. Uh, but I would, I would bet that if we, we, we started investigating your humility, we would get, wouldn't get very far. We'd find some challenges to that, you know. And, and, and these attributes in particular are part of that, you know. The idea that praying is part of humility. Uh, how, how fantastic is your prayer life? How's it going? You don't have to tell me now. Many of you have already told me that it's very difficult for you to pray, to have an intentional uh, a prayer life. How many of you are really committed to seeking God's face, to really getting to know, uh, to getting to know God, and doing everything that it, it takes to really get to know God one on one? Again, my experience is that most of us have a difficult time uh, with investing our time and energy in seeking to really get to know God. And then, how many of you are really adamant about turning from your wicked ways? For honest. Yeah, <laughs> we're recording everyone who laughed then, and we're going to turn that in to the general conference session, Adventist. They're meeting this week. 
They have a compliance committee. That compliance committee may include your laughing. So there we go. Um, where were we? I'm joking around here. Here we go. We have an innate problem, and that is that our ability to act humbly, to really seek God in prayer, to seek God's face and get to know a God, to turn from our wicked, wicked ways, these are things that we are not innately able to do. And so me giving you advice or anyone giving you advice to go and do these things, you are going to feel pretty disappointed uh, pretty soon after you leave here trying to accomplish these things. The reality is that humility is really difficult for us as human beings. Uh, this is evidenced by things like our prayer life. You know, prayer, again, is really a, a challenging thing because it requires you to be a humble. I mean, it's hard to be arrogant and really pray because prayer, in, 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 its, in its most basic sense, is asserting that you can't do it all on your own, Right? So to pray means that you have to acknowledge that there are things that you cannot do and that there is someone or something outside of yourself that is capable of doing what you cannot do. And so that requires humility. And for many of us, our prayer life stinks. It's not very good. And part of that is that we, we, we think that we can do things on our, on our own. And so we try doing things on our own and we we, 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 we have a, a humility problem. Or we only pray for our list of you know, things that we want to get done, and there's really no, no depth to that prayer. And so the idea that people who are known by God's name are going to be, uh, one of the attributes of them are, are that they are going to pray and humble themselves is, is challenging to us because many of us really have a hard time with our own prayer lives. Seeking God's face, getting to know God, another attribute of those who are known by God's name. To really get serious about having a relationship with God, again, my experience is that many of us have a very, very difficult time with this. We don't want to look God in the face. We really don't want to spend too much time getting to know him because if we do that, it's going to have implications for our own, own lives and our, our, our spirit is not humble. We're not ready for what he's really going to communicate to us if we have that kind of connection with him. And so we are a little sketchy about getting too close to God, really looking him in the face. And so the idea that those who are known by God's name, who are going to be a part of the optimistic message of Amos, that that is rooted in really caring about having an intimate relationship with God, that's challenging for us because we don't have this innate inclination toward that. In fact, our innate inclination is toward our, our self. And finally, the attribute of turning from our wicked ways. Uh, you know, I, I think in reality, most of us love our wicked ways, don't we? Do you love your wicked ways? <laughs> Let's confess now. We turn the, yeah. Do you love your wicked ways? We love our wicked ways. Uh, there are things that we have set up in our experience that just are part of, we feel like, who we are, and they are not always good or healthy for our relationship with each other, our relationship with God, or even our relationship with us, and yet it is very difficult to turn from these things. In Jeremiah chapter 35 and verse 15, again and again I sent all my servants to the pro of the prophets to you, and they said, each of you must turn from your wicked ways and reform your actions. Don't follow other gods to serve them. But the reality is, for most of us, we have gods that we've set up in our experience that provide we think certain things for us, 
And it's very, very difficult to turn away from those things. So as we think about the attributes of those people who are called by God's name, who should be optimistic about the future, those attributes are challenging. Humility that leads to prayer, a desire to get to know God where you're seeking his face, and the ability to turn from our wicked ways. If our only hope in being called by God's name is that we have these attributes, we are in desperate, desperate trouble. But there is good news. And that is that although we are innately challenged by embracing these attributes, there is one who has done what we cannot. You know, Jesus had a robust prayer life. In fact, we're told in Mark chapter 1, and verse 35, that early in the morning, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, he left the house, and he went off to a solitary place where he prayed. And Luke chapter 5, verse 16 says that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Jesus had a robust prayer life. Uh, Jesus had an intimate relationship with the Father. He knew God's face, and he wasn't afraid to look in it. He wasn't afraid to embrace the Father at a level in, in which there was intimacy. In John chapter 10 and verse 25, he says, the works that I do, I do in my Father's name, and he testifies about me. I and the Father are one. Jesus had uh, an intimate relationship with God. He was not afraid to look God in his face, to search and to know God deeper and, and better. And so Jesus' prayer life was robust, and he wasn't afraid of looking God in the face. And Jesus was capable of turning from wickedness. We read in Matthew chapter 4 that Jesus, right after his baptism, by the way, that often happens right after your baptism, you're taken out and you face some kind of challenge. That even happened to Jesus. Immediately after the, his baptism, he was taken out into the wilderness where he would have nothing, and he had nothing, and he ate nothing, and, and then the, the, the devil showed up, Satan showed up, and three times tempted Jesus with wickedness, things that didn't seem that bad, but would have, would have really changed who Jesus was and what his mission was, and each time Jesus rebuked and turned from the wickedness that was presented to him in such a powerful fashion. You see, Jesus every time has done that, what we cannot do. When our prayer life stinks, when it's terrible, when it's not going, going well, we can look at Jesus who had a robust prayer life. When, when we really aren't connected with God and we don't feel like we're seeking God's face, we can take heart that there is one who has done what we could not. Jesus and the Father were, were one. When we find ourselves in love with our wicked things, we can take heart that there is one who turned from wicked ways. Jesus has done what we cannot. And the good news in that is that our hope for being called by God's name is not in how great an example of Jesus was and that we should follow him. We should follow his example. If Jesus is just an example for us, we are doomed because we are not good little Jesuses. We, 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 we don't follow Jesus' example. I mean, 
don't get me, Jesus was a great example, right? If only we would do all the things that Jesus did, we would be, it would be fantastic, but you don't do those things. I don't do those things. I'm not a very good follower of Jesus. So thank God. That's not the requirement for being called by God's name. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4 says this, God predestined us for adoption. God, God, God said it in advance that, that people would have the opportunity to be adopted. You know what adopted means? It means that you become part of the family, that you are called by God's name. God has predestined us for adoption through Jesus, not through your ability to have a great prayer life, not through your ability to seek God and his face by studying the Bible or becoming involved in a faith community or whatever. Your, your, your hope is not rooted in your own action and your ability to turn from your wicked ways. God predestined us as, a, as adoption, for, for adoption through Jesus to be called God's family. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he proposed in Christ to be put in our effect. God has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Jesus did what we could not do. When our prayer life is terrible, take heart because Jesus' prayer life was robust. When we find ourselves having a difficult time connecting with God, take heart because Jesus and the Father were one. When we find it hard to turn away from our idols, take heart because there is one who has already done that. Jesus turned away from wicked ways. And the great promises as we embrace Jesus and his work, God is able to work inside of us and to change our heart and do what we can't do for ourselves, to make us the kind of people that we can't be on our own. As we accept Jesus' work, as we accept the fact that Jesus had a beautiful prayer life, that Jesus was one with the Father, that Jesus was able to turn away from, from the wicked things of this world, from the, the, the temptations and the idols that we have out there, God is able to start working in us as we make that embrace, as we, we, we grab his hand. And then we're told in Ephesians chapter 2, and this is the Apostle Paul t- talking, who went through this same process of trying to do it on his own, trying to have an intimate connection with God, trying to be a person of uh, prayer on his own, trying to turn from his wicked ways. He tried to do all of that on his own and came to the realization that it doesn't work that way. And so in Ephesians chapter 2 and t- verse 10, he says this, we are God's handiwork. Make no mistake, we are God's handiwork. If you are going to be uh, a part of the group who is called children of God, if you take God's name, it's not going to be because you have done something amazing, that you've got an amazing prayer life or you study the, the word, or you're involved in a faith community, or you've turned from all of your wicked ways. That's not how it works. We are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus. See, this is Jesus' work within us. Therefore, remember that formerly, you who are Gentiles by birth, 
and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. See, this is good news. If you have felt like you're far away from God, if you felt like you know what you should do and you just can't get it done, you know you should be praying more, you know you've heard from people who you think are spiritual that praying is the solution to everything and you've heard that, but getting it done is difficult. If you've been told you just need to get to know God more and just seek His face, study the Bible, go to Bible study classes and it just doesn't do it for you. If you've been told you need to turn from your wicked ways and you've tried and it hasn't worked, there's good news in the message of Ephesians and Amos and Chronicles that it's not your work on your own anyway. Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. When Jesus died, something happened. And he rose again, and by rising again, we have hope for optimism for a world where things are made new. God is calling all of us to embrace his good work every single day with the promise that as we embrace his work, he's able to start doing us what we can't do for ourselves. And the crazy thing is, then he draws us to prayer, to seek his face, and to turn from our ways, our idols. If that's God's work in us, we'll never, ever, 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 ever do it on our own. As we're empowered by God's Spirit, God will give us hearts of humility, help us to pray and to seek God and to know what is good for us and what isn't and to turn from those things that are going to be harmful for us. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reapers will be overtaken with a plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from the hills and I will bring my people Israel back from exile. The people of Israel people called by God's name, all of us can be a part of that group and face the challenges, the fears, the animosity of today with hope that God is going to make all things new. As we await the transformation, the ultimate trans transformation of the broken world, may we be people who bear God's name by embracing the work of Jesus and allowing him to build in us a life of humility.